in A Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 23, December 2019, Coaching BBC Presenters, a conversation with Elspeth Morrison. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. My first contact with English was really at home. I remember I was like eight or nine years old. Uh, then uh, we purchased at home these curse that came in uh, audio cassettes and books from the BBC London, what's called English Junior. If you guessed Colombia, South America, congratulations. It was Ideas Colombia One, submitted by my former student, Aaron Champion, under my supervision nearly 20 years ago. If you're listening, Aaron, I hope you're doing well. The subject was born and raised in Bogota, moving to Cali when he was 14. To hear the whole recording, search for Columbia One at dialectsarchive.com. Now here's this month's challenge. Particularly challenging, I think. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? Uh, I plan to get married someday, but not right now. So, um, sometimes, yes, sometimes they ask me, when are you going to get married? But I'm not ready to do that just yet. I'm very happy being single. I like my life being single. and um, uh, I, I think the time will come when I'll find someone. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. Some news about my books. For the holidays, my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen is on sale. Both the print version with CDs and the iTunes ebook or Apple book version. A great gift for the actor in your life, or if your own old copy is getting a bit tattered, look for the details at paulmeyer.com. And in the new year, look for the release of my new Birmingham dialect. That's Birmingham, England, not Alabama. And my estuary dialect, too. I will then have nearly 30 accent and dialect titles in book and ebook form. My guest this month is UK-based Elspeth Morrison who, as well as helping actors to learn accents and dialects, works on voice and delivery with the entire spectrum of on-air talent at the BBC in London and elsewhere. From trainees to people who've been tickling the airwaves with their voices for many years, she is an ex-BBC producer who escaped the corporation over 20 years ago to gain an MA in voice studies at Central School of Speech and Drama in London. As well as being a lead coach for the BBC, she's also worked for other broadcasters including CNN, Al Jazeera and the Weather Network. She's currently finishing off the first draft of her book on broadcast voice, which, to be thoroughly modern, will be both written and spoken. For more information about Elspeth, please see the In a Manner of Speaking webpage devoted to this podcast at paulmeyer.com. So, Elspeth, thanks so very much for joining me today. Both of us have spent our lives with the spoken word. We work with actors, we work with journalists, we work with broadcasters. I did a similar topic to this in episode four of May of last year, 2018, with my son Cameron Meyer, who's a journalist. And we, we talked about newscasting in, in slightly different ways. 
But now working with a coach like yourself, this is going to be an entirely different a different matter. So I want to start with this idea that we perhaps get most of our information from the spoken word. I know that's true for me. Television news, uh, radio news, I don't read newspapers that much. So it would seem a pretty good idea for you and me and others like us who are entrusted with training the on-air talent, make sure that they do so as effectively as possible. So tell us about, tell me about your work with BBC Radio, television and on-air talent. So can I just make a little observation before we go any further and feel free to keep or let go of this? I didn't realise that Cameron was your son. And when I was listening to that podcast, I was thrilled. I was fascinated by the similarity of speech rhythms of both of you. I was thinking, oh, good gracious, how am I going to fit in with Paul? How fantastic is that? And I, I, I had no idea. There was probably a clue in the name, but I had no idea that you, in fact, related. But as I was listening to it, I was thinking, oh, they're very, they're very simpatico, these two. They fit very well, and they seem to know when the other's going to speak. And, well, you know, maybe if you've known each other a while, that's how it works. We've known each other just a little while, yes. So my work at the BBC, I never imagined, I used to be a producer. I was a producer in documentaries. I used to write terribly long scripts for then poor old presenters or actors to come in and deliver these terrible scripts that I'd written because I had no appreciation for the spoken word. I knew about the written word and how to construct a sentence and how to get facts and information in. And I noticed that they were always having to speak faster because I couldn't time what I was writing down to fit the space I'd left. I made massive assumptions about the possibilities of presenters and what actors could do. And, and this sparked off a thing in my head when I was a producer that the voice, the human voice, which I've always been massively interested in language and communication, how it works. So I decided to do something other than television, which I wasn't enjoying terribly much anyway. I thought, I want to do something different. So I went to Central School, School of Speech and Drama in London and did an MA in voice studies. Never imagining for one moment I would ever go back to the BBC on any level. Thought I'd be a big accent dialect coach on film sets, lording it around with my name on the back of a chair. Um, and then when it came to it, I thought, oh, I don't really want to do that either. I don't want to be in the mud, in the cold, with a backless chair, frankly. So I just kind of tripped across working with broadcasters sometimes because I had that experience as a producer and knew a few people and got into working with weather presenters, first of all, mm who are extremely marvellous. They have no script. Weather presenters have no script. They barely needed me, but I was able to practice my wares, um, my new wares, my newly found wares of how to get your voice on screen, how to deliver your message, how to find, how to work without a script to get your message across a bit better. So that's where I started with weather presenters. And then moved into working with all sorts of people. And um, that actually, I realise, doesn't quite answer your question, what do I do with them? What I do with them is help them deliver better. And what that means, it's the whole package. So it's not just about voice. It's not just about the noise that comes out of your face. It's actually about what's the script. How do you write a script that sounds like it should be said? How do you write for the voice? How do you write for the voice indeed? Because listening to your previous podcast and you had Walter Cronkite. Yes, because that's a very particular style. 
that's a very particular way of reading. And you had some discussion about delivery and making things sound scripted. And now people run away from anything sounded scripted. They want everything to sound spontaneous, made up in spontaneous, the moment. except, except, except for news reading. Exactly. And there's a clue in the title, news reading. It should just sound, and this is like the holy grail, this is the thing I'm always working with on people, is how do you turn this thing in print, in front of you, either on the screen or on the page, how do you make it sound as if you literally just wandered into the studio and are just having a little bit of a chat? How do we do that in all sorts of different environments? So that's my job. Most people probably haven't realised the full extent to which the written word differs from the spoken word. The phrasing is so very different. We don't obey punctuation when we're speaking. We run right through full stops and commas. Mm. And we put our pauses mid-phrase as we're gathering our thoughts to complete a phrase. So mm. actors, of course, have to deal with this all the time. Perhaps they've got a very grammatical, very literary playwright to deal with. You know, uh, George Bernard Shaw, for example, who wrote complete sentences as if people were completely fluent and, and grammatical and literary in their speech, and mm. the actor has to make that sound as if it's freshly minted, of course. Perhaps a little bit of that obtains to the newsreader too, that al although we know that the newsreader is in fact reading the news, he or she has told us, I'm going to read you the news. We know it's written down and that person is reading from a script, and yet we want a little bit of the idea that it's being processed in that person's brain in the moment, mm. don't we? We do. You know, I often come across people who just, um, when they're new to, I mean, I'm, I'll treat newsreading as separately to everything else. Because if you think of a radio show, for example, I mean, I often say this to people with somebody in front of me, I say, like, okay, who on the show should sound the most informal? Who should sound the most like somebody just chatting? And that, of course, is the, uh, the weatherman or the weatherwoman. The weather, the weather, or the presenter, indeed. Yes, the weather, but, but basically anybody except the newsreader. The only job that should sound a little bit formalised is the newsreader and the people that, at the BBC, they call them voice pieces. It's that little bit when they say, our oh, reporter, Elspeth Morrison has more. And it's a pre-recorded thing. That might sound a little bit red as well. But everything else should just sound as if people are just chatting. Well, not just chatting, and this is where it gets interesting, because I meet people who've been told to be themselves or to, quote, sound natural or, quote, conversational. This is a very hard concept to take on board. You know this, Paul. It's the very simple thing is that we have a variety of different ways of using our voices depending on circumstance and who we're speaking to. So We, we code shift, of course. We code shift, exactly. We style shift or we code switch depending who we're speaking to. So, you know, the talking for the dog voice, who's a good boy, who's a good boy, would be completely inappropriate <laughs> to go on air with, yes? Or who's, talking who's, to who's the bad child. News? Who's a six o'clock news? Who's, who's a good boy? Who's a, who's a, who's a six o'clock news? Who's a, who's a got ears? Who's got ears? It would be wrong. It, and we recognise it. Or equally to take on that sort of, how old is this child I'm talking to who's a very good child? Or equally, who's a very naughty child at the moment? This is a revelation to a lot of people. Yes. Um, you what, know, this what, you, you're, what you're saying is that we must always, and we do pretty much always, match the speech style to the context. Yes. This echoes what uh, David Crystal and I were talking about some months ago on the episode we devoted to pragmatics. We have context when we speak and we suit the style of speech to what we wish to accomplish and the person we're speaking to and, and, and the topic we're speaking about. Exactly. So 
we all do it apart from people at the very far ends of the social spectrum tend not to you know my scaffolders that came to my house recently all twice what as it and I imagine I heard the guy on the phone and that's how he speaks on the phone that's how this man speaks all the time similarly very posh people I encounter in the house of law who always tend to talk the same way depending who they're speaking to but most ordinary mortals in between as we know shift around so being on air it's which version of natural are you going to be so that's what people I think struggle with and that of course has has changed in our lifetime the idea of what is the appropriate level of formality has changed what a cronkite and and the news readers of the 20s and 30s from the BBC were so mm. extremely formal but yet then we listen to Fiona Bruce of today and while it's still formal it's still a very very wonderful style of of reading the news it has a little bit of the um, apparent spontaneity. Well, exactly. And I mean, it's interesting you say the, the newsreaders of the 20s and 30s, let us not forget that women weren't allowed on air at the BBC, certainly, until 1960. 1960! Because women were deemed to be too shrill. I mean, mm, there are a lot of women out there now, thank goodness. But, you know, the, the dominant voice was a male voice. The female voice was deemed to have insufficient gravitas to deliver the, yes. the important stories of the day. Can I just go back to another thing that we were just beginning to talk about there of, of people finding their natural voice? Because I get a lot, I work with a lot of younger people. And when I say younger, I mean sort of 18 upwards. So people that have literally just finished school, that's high school, and are on trainee schemes at the BBC, for example. And lots of younger journalists, there's lots and lots of younger journalists around, very good younger journalists around. And there's a real generation split, I notice, a young woman I was working with the other day when I, I met her, and again, I was told to give her more authority in her voice. In the room, she was like talking to me like this. So she had a little bit of fry and a bit of up glide. I'm making it too interesting, actually, because basically what she was doing was actually a monotone. She was doing very little until she reached the end of the sentence. And I said, oh, would you listen to yourself on air? Because she played me something. She's presenting the show. She went, not really. I sound a little bit boring don't I I said yeah I said is there any place in your life where you might sound a bit animated and she described when she's talking about horses because she really likes horses and she got quite animated and then when she was talking to me she got more animated in her voice I said could you put that on air do you think you could do that she said I don't want to appear uncool <laughs> so I didn't I don't want to appear like an old person I said but can we agree you might be a little bit too dull and flat. We've got to give you, I'm going to trademark this term, a bit more oomph in your voice. Oomph. And she kind of understood what oomph was. And it was a long, slow process, but eventually she agreed that maybe using a little pitch range in her voice, as she would in other parts of her life, might be a good thing on air. So, Elspeth, I'm going to play a little bit of the news at six on Radio mm -hmm. 4. And for the non-Brits listening to this, Radio Radio 4 is the posh end of the BBC spectrum, right? Correct. So this is a very, very heavily edited piece of uh, News at Six from a couple of nights ago. I think it's one, one anchor, of course, and mm -hmm. nine correspondents. The London Fire Brigade has rejected criticism levelled at it in the first report on the Grenfell Tower fire. Its commissioner said there was no expert evidence to support the finding that many more lives could have been saved if a decision had been made to evacuate the building earlier. Give me your reaction to that voice and that style. 
It's what I'd expect of Radio 4. It does what it says on the tin. It's right for the brand. In terms of accent, David Crystal was reminding me in November's podcast that the Annan report of, what was it, the late 70s, the, the 80s, recommended lots and lots of regional accents to come mm. into the BBC. And it seems to me that the, although there is variety in the News at Six Radio 4 anchor, uh, we are predominantly treated to RP. Everybody that I encounter uh, is firmly of the belief they've got the wrong accent yeah. uh, across the board. RP speakers, Scottish people I meet in Glasgow who come into the room going, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I've got the wrong accent. I'm, I think my accent is too strong. And they've got a very mild Scottish accent. And I say, you work for Radio Scotland. There's a clue on the title, you're fine. Um, RP speakers who say, there's no work for me here anymore. Everybody feels they're badly done to. But my observation is that the dominant accent across the BBC is from the southeast of England. Now, that's not necessarily RP. That is that sort of estuary sound as well. But a lot of local radio stations I work with have got people not from the locale that they're in, but there's a lot of people with accents of the southeast. So I would say that's still the dominant accent. But if you listen to something like BBC Minute, which is a world service output, and it does what it says on the tin, it's, it's, it's news in a minute that's on every half hour and it's got a listenership of about 10 million or so every week. And it's aimed at a younger audience. And on there, you get world Englishes as well as British English and American English. Every English you could possibly imagine. But to be fair to the news at six, the nine correspondents who supplemented what the anchor was delivering did demonstrate some regional variety, though it's still dominantly southeast British English. Uh, let me continue with that clip. So that's the nice, slightly old-fashioned very formal, not overstressed, journalistic distance and all of that, with a nod to Voice Beautiful of the old days, perhaps. This report examines the night of the fire in intricate detail across a thousand pages. Its conclusions are clear. What should have been a small fire in the corner of a kitchen developed into a wall of flame spreading up and round the tower because it was fuelled by the cladding panels. So slightly more modern English from correspondent number one. Comment on this for me, if you will, Elspeth. The anchors usually speak as if the ear of the listener is no further away than the microphone, just as you and I are speaking to each other now. Bring the correspondent on, and now our correspondent for, for Brexit, and immediately they raise the decibel level. They start speaking loudly as if they've been caught in the moment, in the midst of all the drama in Brussels and mm. they, they're shouting over passing traffic or something. So they suddenly speak as if the ear of the listener is further away. All nine correspondents on this particular News at Six episode do precisely that. They're all either a little bit or significantly louder and more animated than the presenter, the anchor. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I totally hear what you're saying. I think they just do it to get energy. I mean, here's the thing as well. With, let's say, the ongoing Brexit story, they're so blooming bored with, you know, or so amazed at the turn of events. It's trying to put energy in something. The volume is a way of putting in energy to a non-story. Yes. I hear that a lot. And I totally hear what you're saying. I think it's it's an energetic response to something that's actually crushing their souls, likely. One of my favourite um, 
observations to actors who routinely get too loud on a stage is that volume is the cheapest, nastiest form of, of energy and intensity. It's just a cliché. It is. I worked with a young woman yesterday who was very concerned about projecting. This is what she arrived saying. She said, I need to project into the microphone. So <laughs> what she was doing was tilting her head up and shouting with a big smile on her face because she'd taken various things that people had said that you need to yeah. smile, you need to speak up. And I said, oh, mate, in the room, I mean, the acid test for me is, are you too loud in the room? The microphone is the ear of the listener, is the way I yes. always talk about it. And it would be very rude to be six inches from the ear of someone you're speaking to and to shout. I absolutely agree. I think the thing is that a lot of them these days, the correspondents, the reporters who are doing this work either in the studios or from location are not working with microphones per se they're working with funny little click on things or head things or um, lip mics that uh, that sort of suck all the goodness out your voice the technology has changed so much that's part of the reason as well but also the kind of entertainment aspect of speaking Presenters, anchors get their sort of conversation with an individual. Reporters often don't because no one's answering, no one's talking back to them. Yes. So they're on their own, just bellowing on. Yes. Along with my observation that the correspondents who are brought in to supplement and illustrate the, the anchors' main stories, in addition to being routinely louder than the, the anchor, the correspondents also stress twice as many words per sentence as the anchor does. Again, I think that's in the interests of being interesting and often often it's the wrong words that I, I describe it often as noun stress, that people get think the nouns are the most important words to get across in a sentence. And it's like, no, it's, it's what's the action around the blooming nouns. I think I've made all the points I wanted to about the news at six, other than saying that it's pretty darn good and sustains my interest. Mm. Only sometimes do they get in their own way and that the style trumps the substance of the story. But I'm a huge fan of News at Six. I think they do it very well most of the time. I just wish the correspondents were just a little less inclined to shout at me and, I'll tell them. and to overstress. So please take care of that, Elspeth. I will. I'll, so, I'll sort it out for you, Paul. No okay. worries. Meanwhile, Charlotte Green, is it? Charlotte Green. So Charlotte Green was a newsreader for a very long time uh, at the BBC. Should we listen to her? Yes. Sheikh Ahmed Yassin was the leader of one of the largest and most militant of all the Palestinian groups fighting the Israeli occupation, making him a prime target. In 1989, he was jailed by the Israelis, but was released in 1997 as part of a prisoner exchange. Charlotte Green. Charlotte Green. She was often cited, when she was at the BBC, she was often cited to me as, oh, are you going to make them sound like Charlotte Green? Because she's got these sort of mellifluous tones, this slightly old school RP, and Many people say to me, oh, my goodness, you know, she's she's got the most beautiful voice. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. At the time I was working at a drama school, I played just to see what the 19-year-olds thought of the news with somebody with such a beautiful voice. So I played a clip of her and I played a similar news clip from Radio 2, which is a more casual kind of news delivery with a sort of younger sounding voice with more pitch range and inflection in it. And what was interesting was the 18-year-olds, on the whole, found Charlotte Green's voice to be very beautiful, 
but they didn't really listen to what she was saying. Whereas for content, they listened to the other woman I played them who had a voice and an accent nearer to how most of them would deliver. So it just made me think that the sort of, in news particularly, beauty doesn't, must never get in the way of the message. You can be upstaged by your own virtuosity. Absolutely. There was very early on when I started doing this, I worked with a, with a guy called Kevin who had this very bassy voice. I can't even go to the places he went to. And, and I, I worked with him about three times and he kept saying, can you rough him up a bit? He hasn't got the right sort of tone for news. And eventually he left and went to work for Jazz FM, which was the right place for his voice. So, you know, there are different voice qualities that people arrive with and there is a home there is a home for everybody out there. But I think it, you know, it really depends on what programme, what brand, what they want to put across. Taste. There's this thing called taste comes into play all the time. And we're very tribal as listeners. We tend to believe and give credence to people who speak as we do. I was engaged to work with political dissidents from other countries some years ago. And it was felt in Washington that they would be the very best witnesses when trying to change the China policy or the North Korea policy. If you get dissidents from that country telling their story, the human rights issues that were being bandied about would be so much more effectively changed by those yes. witnesses. But very frequently, of course, they had very, very strong Chinese or or Vietnamese accents. And of course, it's routinely observed by psychologists that accents are not believed. You can have two people mm. telling you the same thing and have a panel judging which one is telling you the truth. And the one who speaks closest to your, in your own accent will be the one who excites the most credibility. So there's a certain amount of tribalism in, in who you ascribe authority or credibility to. I'd like to close today on a very, very favourite topic of mine, which I've spoken about in my books. I call it the hierarchy of importance. It seems to me that in every sentence, there are one or two words that are more important than other words. In every group of sentences, there are sentences that are more important than other sentences. In any group of paragraphs, there's going to be one or two paragraphs that are more important than others. And it seems to me that to engage the interest of the listener, to retain the interest and to tell the story well, some sensitivity to what's more important than other things at every level, from the, from the smallest to the largest unit of speech, is so important. What do you think? Hierarchy of importance, how to avoid making everything important, oh, because that's the same as nothing yes. is important. Yes, it's hierarchy of importance. It's about speaking with purpose and intention. Why are you speaking? It's something that actors kind of get quite early on hierarchy yeah but the writing has got to be right in order to be able to the, the reader's got to understand what the hierarchy is rather than think they've got to obey some written rules yes it's a question of being in touch with your topic with your subject knowing what you're talking about well yes i mean it's like for example that well, an example i often use is just the phrase it was quite a good game it was quite a good game if i write it was quite a good game I don't know which way the story is going to go. If I use my voice to say, it was quite a good game. You have some reservations. Yes, or it was quite a good game. You were surprised. I was surprised. It was, it was actually really brilliant. So I'm using my voice 
to foreshadow what's coming next. So there's a way load of shorthand there rather than me having to write out what I mean. Yes. And as we often say to actors, your job is not simply to make the text audible. If the text was the important thing, we would simply hand out the scripts to the audience as they walked in and say, this is pretty good yes. stuff. Sit, sit down and read this for a couple of hours. But what, what we have with the human voice is to amplify and bring in information that could never possibly be there on the page. Exactly. I had the major privilege recently of working with an actor called Simon McBurney, who's one of the founders of Theatre de Complicité. His way of working with text is, is very difficult to tell when he's just speaking to you or he's doing the text. So one time we had an appointment on on WhatsApp and he was he got held up and he was a bit late and he just he launched into this so I'm really sorry I'm 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 such a flake I need to get out of myself and and I said oh you're fine oh oh you're reading the, the that's the script that's the script you're actually doing you're not talking to me at this point so he's someone who can make something written sound as if he's just chatting and that's what good actors do and that's what good news readers do well it's what good anchors and presenters do and newsreaders have just got that little air of formality with them, but still hit the right words, the right words that we need to hear in order to fully understand the story and where it's going. I spoke with Kristen Linklater on a podcast recently, and she and I got on a thing that coincidentally we both hit upon in separate readings without knowing that each other had written on it. And she, she identified it as, as airline speak and... She quoted, and I, I do that something similar. I don't know which is hers and which is mine now, but you know, you will often hear a cabin attendant saying, "Please remain in your seats until the captain has turned off the nose, mm -hmm. this fastened seat, and the plane has come to a complete stop at the gate." And I asked her. Neither of us could really come up with a good explanation as to why all those little unimportant linking mm -hmm. words were the ones that were being honoured instead of the load-bearing words. I'll put the same question to you. Have you any idea why? A, the cabin attendants feel that this is the right read and why that style sometimes gets into the voice of our on-air talent as well. It's an infection, Paul. I think it's just simply an infection that people hear other people doing it, so I think that's the right way to do it. For example, old school BBC versus Elizabeth Morrison with the news. I mean, it's quite an old way of delivering. That's sort of in the back. It's like folk memory. It's what they grew up with. It's what they think is the right way to doing it, similarly with the cabin crew. So you've heard other people doing that sort of thing. So you think that's the right thing to do. And um, it's just copying. I, I don't think there's any great conspiracy. It's just, uh, but we have to get out there. We have to persist in stopping them. But at least when cabin crew do that, you know, it's probably cabin crew and not a passenger that's taken over the microphone. So there's a level of safety with it. Yes, they. So I think it's not all bad. Yes, they've let. They let all the blood out of the announcement, saying this is no threat at all. So yes. you don't yes. really have to listen or even do things, uh, you know. So, but yeah, also, just I'm, to... I'm not going to boss you about by saying, please remain in mm. your seat yes. until the yes. plane has come to a yes. complete and final yes. stop yes. at the gate. That would be too authoritative, wouldn't yes. it? Yes, please, no, please stay in your seat. Yeah, no, proper, too bossy. So it's a sort of soothing thing. You know, Elspeth, I think we could live ten lifetimes and never get bored. The spoken word is endlessly mysterious, endlessly fascinating and an endlessly rewarding sphere in which to move, isn't it? It never stops. I mean, you know, every day there's a new story, you know, just talking to casually people on the bus. There's a new story, more stories, we say, more voice stories. 
<laughs> thanks for joining me. You're welcome. I enjoyed that. And thanks to you for joining Elspeth Morrison and me, Paul Meyer. The BBC radio clips you heard are used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. You can follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. Join me next time when my guest will be Jill McCullough, one of the world's most successful dialect coaches for the movies. Mary Poppins Returns, Mamma Mia, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and over 100 other television and film coaching credits. Jill McCullough, next time on In a Manner of Speaking.